You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, I'm excited for our guest today. You could say he's a bit of a, a thrill seeker. He briefly raced motorcycles back in the day, uh, but he's very well known now on his call with, with motorsports and so much more. Yeah, I, some would call him a, a speed demon. Uh, I'm not, not sure demon is probably the, the correct way to, to describe him, but uh, definitely a thrill seeker. Uh, has tons of experience doing motor broadcasting. Uh, definitely the most prolific out there, according to the NBC Sports Press Box website. Uh, he's worked at Speed Channel. Uh, he's called IndyCar Races, Formula One Races. Uh, he's done stuff for the International Motorsports Association, and he's in a little bit of NASCAR. Uh, recently, he's become the new play-by-play uh, -play for track and field at the Olympics, so we'll get to talk to him about that towards the end. Uh, our first motorsports person on with us. It's going to be really, really interesting, really fun, very different for us, and we're definitely very happy to have him on. Uh, Lee Diffie, Lee, welcome to our program. Nice to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, guys. Um, firstly, thanks for having me on. Uh, secondly, uh, what a joy to be the first motorsports broadcaster on, on, on your podcast. So thanks for the honor. Well, the honor is all ours. We're excited to have you on the show here. And we just, you know, we want to know, you know, how did you become a fan of motorsports? I know I mentioned earlier that you briefly raced motorcycles, but growing up uh, in Australia, what was the, the scene like there? for you when it comes to watching motorsports? Well, I grew up, um, I kind of, it's, it's really been all I've ever known as far as um, from, from the first sport I did. I started uh, racing when I was six years old and, and I did it for about 10 or 11 years. So when I was 16 or 17 and uh, my older brother raced and a lot of my friends raced and they, they, you know, some of my friends went on to become world champions uh, in, in motorcycle racing and, and then, you know, I went from motorbikes to, to cars a little later on uh, once I started um, broadcasting on television. Um, but, yeah, it was a major part of my life. And I was a sports kid at school, you know, played footy, played cricket, did a little bit of everything. Uh, but, but the common thread was always motorsports. So um, I, I didn't uh, study journalism or communications at university. I actually was a, a, a physical education, a PE teacher. Um, but it got to a fork in the road there at, at a point in time where I was doing more and more public address commentary. And I thought that maybe there might have been a shot where I could jump and try and uh, to get into television. So for you, you consider this a hobby and this hobby has extended out to your children. Uh, I know that your son's uh, like riding around with you. So, uh, so explain uh, how that works you know where you take them out to go riding and stuff where you know where that love came from uh and is there anybody else in your family or close friends who uh share this passion like you do oh sure yeah 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 i think i think once it's part of your once it's part of your life it'll always be part of your life and and so um we have a we have a small property in new york uh and i don't you know i don't have any great desire for my kids to race or compete or anything like that it's just another life skill, right? The more you can do, uh, the more you enjoy life, whether that's snow skiing or surfing or uh, what, whatever it might be, wakeboarding, uh, anything that you can add to your repertoire in life to enjoy life more on different platforms. So, yeah, I'm not, um, I, I'm not a, a little league dad or anything like that in those regards to my boys. I, I, just, I just wanted them to have another life skill. And, 
you know, when you sit on a motorbike and, and crack the throttle and uh, there's, there's nothing more exhilarating. So I just wanted them to have that experience and, and be proficient. So what do you remember about the time period where you were transitioning into broadcasting? You mentioned doing some public address, but how did the opportunity come about for you initially to, to work early on with Network 10 and BBC? That's a good question. Um, you know, I was, I was at that point where uh, it's kind of a, a three-step process, I, I think you could say, Nick, where I was still a school teacher and I was doing public address broadcasting on weekends and sometimes it would be in different states. So I would be scrambling to get the earliest flight home back to Brisbane and make it to school in time for the first class with the kids, you know, and it, it, I guess circumstances drive you to make a decision one way or another. And, um, you know, I was getting more and more higher profile public address jobs. Nothing was on television yet. Um, my oldest friend in life, uh, and another buddy, they were both in MotoGP. They were living in Monaco on the World Championship, winning Grand Prix. And so I approached a local radio station, the biggest FM station in Brisbane at the time, and uh, the sports uh, the sports anchor. And I said, listen, you don't know me. This is my name. I'm, I'm very close to Mick Doohan and Daryl Beattie. I said, if I stay up late at night and, and write the report on, on, on the Grand Prix, could you just give me a name recognition? I don't want any money for it, but... I'll write a 30 or 45 second script or a one minute script and I'll, I'll, I'll call it in over the phone. And just if you could do it on the morning sports uh, break on the radio, but just mention my name. And they said, sure, sounds great. You know more about it than we do. So that was step one. And then, and then um, just I met a lot of people. You know, I, I speak, I, I'm really fortunate to speak to a lot of young people, whether it be uh, high school, university uh, students or interns uh, within the television industry. And I just tell, tell all of the, the young folk just keep your eyes wide open. There are opportunities everywhere. And it, there's, there's, that, there's that line in the sand for people who can see those opportunities, but they don't act on the opportunities and it's acting on those opportunities. So I made sure that I was a ferocious collector of everybody's business cards and everybody's job titles and everybody's <laughs> telephone numbers and, and just made sure I stayed in contact. And, and, and as things went down the line there, um, opportunities came up to, to, to uh, get some odd TV jobs. And once I started doing a couple, then I was uh, approached by Network 10 in Australia and, and offered a, a more of a, a serious role. But to begin with, um, they said, listen, we would like you, you know, we know that you, you can commentate. We like your commentary. That's what it's attracted us to you. But you need to know the business of television a little bit better and, and broaden your scope. So we'd like you to be a freelance reporter on the nightly sports show called Sports Tonight, which was a lot like ESPN Sports Center, if you will. And I said, okay, great. So I was a freelance journo, journalist and uh, I was in one of the biggest newsrooms in Australia and I couldn't type, but I didn't tell them that. <laughs> and so <laughs> I kind of hid in the corner and, and uh, two-finger typed my way until I could get a little, little more uh, experience and, and get better. And, and then one thing, you know, flowed in, into the next. Um, I stayed in Australia for three and a half years and worked all kinds of sports it was a tremendous grounding, something that I still fall back on to this day. But I, I, I had some uh, overseas experience, Formula One launches, going to the 24 hours of Le Mans. And I really got the taste for the Northern Hemisphere. And um, an older friend and colleague really encouraged me. And, and so I took the leap of faith and, again, through good contacts, was able to land a job at the BBC. So you're, you're making an impact there, doing great things there in your 20s. Early 2000s, you get approach with the opportunity to come to the United States to do some coverage for CART series and then later on making the move full-time to Speed Channel. 
what was that process like for you and you know your family? And was that an easy decision for you to you know move across the world and come to the United States, or was that something you kind of just were like, I think this is something I have to do, and this will be a leap of faith, and it's something that paid off for you? Yeah, a little, a little. It's a good question. It's a little bit of all of the above. Um, I, I really enjoyed my two years working for the BBC, but my goal going to London. Uh, my goal was to uh, work in Formula One and, and to take over when the legend Murray Walker retired. And anyway, um, I, I proudly say that I got to the short list of three. Uh, I didn't end up getting it. But obviously, later in my career, I would work on Formula One. And I'd done a couple of IndyCar races. And I kind of thought, well, if I can't get the Formula One job, the next best thing is IndyCar. And, you know, I love America. And uh, there were, through some contacts, there were some opportunities to come here. Um, I was married at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm married now, but not to the same person. And I think, you know, your question just sparked a thought that, uh, you know, they're big risks, they're, they're big opportunities, but they're big risks. And, and with it comes consequences. And, you know, I think my first marriage was a victim of, of me chasing my career goals so hard, you know, and, and dragging somebody all around the world with me. And it wasn't necessarily their story, you know, it was my story. So, um, you know, all of, all of the people, I, you know, I've seen the list of people that you interview and, and they've all got wonderful stories, but, you know, in amongst all of our, the tapestry of all of our stories, it's not always rosy, you know, there, there, are, there are some victims along the way and circumstances that, that aren't so rosy because um, I think when you're so goal-driven and so determined, maybe, maybe you don't keep your eyes wide enough open to, to everything that you should. I think that was a really good answer. Um... You know, thankfully, everything has seemingly worked out for you. Uh, yeah. Very, it's very hard to to candidly discuss things like that, but you know, it puts life into perspective. And one thing that Nick and I try to do here is we try to, when we interview people, we we want the most honest responses that we can possibly get from people, um, true to life, actually real to life. Um, so, great answer there. You know, I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, what was the moment, we'll, we'll put predominantly kind of say earlier on in your career, uh, kind of in the early mid 2000s when you first got to America here. Um, but if it happened later, you know, more than I'm happy to answer that. Uh, what was the one moment uh, or the one race or the one event that you called uh, where you knew this was it? This was the moment for you. This was the, the exact time uh, that you were going to get your big break or that was eventually going to lead to your big break? What was that moment for you? That is a, that is a great question. And I'm not sure off the top of my head, I have the immediate answer because in those earlier days, Joe, um, you know, I was the new guy here. Um, obviously, uh, I was the only Australian uh, in, in the motorsport television world over here. Um, in a broadcast sense, you know, there were other, there were lots of Americans, there were some Canadians, there were some Brits, um, but I was the only Aussie doing it. So, you know, you're kind of the new guy on the block. And I think I had to learn my way. Um, it was, it was actually calling a support series. It wasn't IndyCar. It was actually calling a support series called the Barber Dodge Pro Series. And it had people like uh, Danica Patrick and AJ Armendinger and, and names like that in there that was a stepping stone up, up to IndyCar and uh, that was aired on Speed Channel. And so the commentary that I was doing for 
you know, Cart International or IndyCar International, even though I was living in America, I wasn't heard in America. I was heard all around the rest of the English speaking world, except here. And so anyway, being at the track at the same time as this other series, Speed Channel needed some commentary on this, on this feeder series. And so I did that uh, with my colleague, Jeremy Shaw, and that actually exposed me to the Speed Channel people, the producers and the executives. And uh, I was at a race meeting once in Miami and I got a tap on the shoulder uh, by a gentleman. I knew, uh, I knew uh, who he was and what he did at Speed Channel. His name was David Lee. And he said, I'd like you to meet me. You know, it was in a very clandestine way. I had to be careful about it. I'd like you to meet me in that production trailer over there in you know, one hour and we'd like to talk to you. And I said, okay. And then that's where they offered me a contract to go to Speed. And, and uh, you know, I was at Speed for the best part of 10 years and doing everything from Formula One to MotoGP to Le Mans, uh, everything, Daytona 24, Rolex 24 at Daytona, so many great things. And I, I, I lay um, a lot of credit, give a lot of credit to those that decade at Speed for exposing me to other people that led to my NBC uh, opportunity in 2013. And with no disrespect to Speed Channel, no disrespect to any other person, any other network I've ever worked for, but when I joined NBC in 2013, the end of 2012, actually, that's when my world changed. So from Australia to the United Kingdom, full-time here in the United States, Nick and I always ask this question. Um, considering you did a considerable amount of traveling, and I would say a lot more traveling uh, for somebody who does broadcasting than, uh, than somebody who obviously comes from here in the States, uh, do you have an agent and... The representation question, was it difficult for you to keep the same person representing you or did you have to change agencies or, or representation uh, during the course of your travels and during the course of you moving from job to job from place to place? In the early days, Joe, I never had any representation. Um, I did it all myself. And then um, it was probably a couple of years before I joined NBC uh, somebody encouraged me to, to, to get some representation and said, look, you're getting bigger and bigger jobs. You're getting more opportunities. I think it's probably time that you get, you get, you join an agency and they, they recommended an agency. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. And I, and I, I paired with this um, a terrific young agent called Matt Kramer at an agency called CSE in Atlanta. And uh, I learned the ways of dealing with an agent and what it was like to have an agent and how they could help and how they, maybe sometimes didn't help. And it was great. It was a terrific learning experience. And Matt and I charged on down the road and uh, uh, he, he was instrumental in that, that NBC, the very first NBC negotiation where I was hired to do Formula One and IndyCar at the same time and the Olympics. And, um, and then Matt uh, moved on and he, he went from CSE to CAA and uh, not quite as dramatic as a Jerry Maguire situation, you know, who's coming <laughs> with me, but uh, he was so good to me when I was, you know, ostensibly a nobody that I felt a sense of loyalty to him. So I followed him to CAA and he moved to New York City and I'm really proud of him. He's, he's, he's really grown in his career. Um, we reached a point where, you know, I kind of felt that uh, things had plateaued and, and so we, we agreed to move apart very mutually, very friendly. And so for the last, probably, um, probably for the last five years, I've, I've, I've gone back to solo and I, and I do it alone. So I think there's pros and cons on either side of the fence. So I, I'm not sure there's a definitive answer to give you, but um, I think agents suit some people in some roles better than others. And, and 
some people need them, some people don't. I'm not saying I don't need one, but at the moment I, I don't have one. I, I, I handle all my own affairs. So you mentioned you know, going to NBC, doing a bunch of different things. And you mentioned, you know, just working for NBC alone, you kind of seemed to be huge for you. And you really weren't sure where your career would take you, but you get to NBC and then you're at the Olympics. I mean, did you have to pinch yourself and who, who kind of approached you with that? And, and they said to you, we're going to have you do luge, skeleton, bobsled. We like, well, yes. And then didn't your head, we were like, how am I going to learn about these sports? And how did you prepare <laughs> for that first winter games at Sochi in 2014? Well, I, uh, Nick, I tell, my, I tell my two sons I do more homework and reading and writing now than when I was ever at high school or university. <laughs> so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of prep that goes into it. But uh, I, had, I got that opportunity to go to NBC through a former NASCAR racer and a former broadcast partner of mine called Wally Dallenbeck. And Wally had spoken to, um, to the head of production and the and NBC Sports uh, executive producer, Sam Flood, and they were looking for a play-by-play that could do both, you know, IndyCar and they thought Formula One was on the horizon and Wally put my name forward in a very encouraging way. And so Sam Flood has been my biggest uh, supporter there at the network and he, he was the guy who got me in and said, listen, you're uh, obviously you're a professional broadcaster, you're a race caller. And he said, there's more racing in the world than just motorsport. And he said, so we're going to throw a lot of things at you and we're going to see what sticks. And he said, you're going to sign this, you know, we're offering you this contract and it's not just a motorsport contract. It's an all-encompassing contract that one of the key things in there is going to be the Olympic Games. And first up, it's going to be Sochi and you're going to call bobsled, skeleton and luge because it's racing. And then in 2016, you're going to go to Rio and you're going to call uh, uh, um, rowing and the kayaking and the flat water events. It's racing. And then you're going to do some track and field for us. And then you're going to, and so they just kept throwing things at me. And so, uh, next year will be my 10th year at NBC. And I think the only non-racing thing I've done is rugby. And I continue to work on rugby and I love it. And, you know, growing up in Australia, I was around uh, a lot of mates who played rugby and I taught at a school that was uh, uh, an excellent, excellent uh, private school in rugby. So, yeah, it, it, it's amazing how it's kind of a little far-fetched, but it's incredible how it's all come together uh, so effectively. And it's, and it's been such a fun ride. So, you mentioned obviously just did the summer games you did track and field i'm assuming you were doing that off a monitor and we spoke to some of your colleagues or were you actually there for that we were there no, we wow. were that, that very was, fortunate yeah, nick, yeah. nick that was one of the most bizarre things is uh, is sitting there in the broadcast position in a 70,000 person stadium where you you you're basically alone you know uh, there were other broadcasters and other members of the media and other workers for the stadium and the athlete support staff. And I don't know, maybe there was a thousand of us in there or 2000 of us in the stadium, but uh, it was, it was a very vacuous space. And I felt, I felt sorry for Japan. I felt sorry for Tokyo. I felt sorry for the Japanese people as far as the amount of effort that went into hosting the games. And, and, and they did a tremendous job to make sure that our safety was paramount in, in COVID situation that, that everybody was abiding by the protocol uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, not once did I ever feel in a compromised situation. It was very heavily controlled and governed. And uh, we were in a 14 day, what they called a 14 day soft quarantine. So you were allowed to go from your hotel room to your place of work and then back again for 14 days. So there was no getting out on the town and going shopping and going to restaurants and bars. It was very strictly and tightly governed. So 
they did a terrific job. So maybe this is like pulling behind the curtain a bit here, but you know, when you're doing the winter games, it's only really one thing going on at a time. It's one, there's one tracks there, but to me as a viewer on TV with track and field, you know, it looks like there's a million things going on at once. Yeah, uh, there is, there obviously is. <laughs> you're calling the big races, but is there from a broadcast perspective, a lot of you voicing stuff over after the fact and you're throwing it down for interviews. Cause while somebody wins, you know, you're throwing it down to an interview, but there's another race going on. So I'm curious, what, how, how does that work for you as a broadcaster as to what you're actually calling what's live, what's being, you know, t- taped and whatnot. So every race that we called, and this is a, this is a very detailed answer. Every race that myself, Atto Bolden, Sonia Richards-Ross, Kara Goucher, um, Paul Swangarden, Trey Hardy on the field events, every event that we called, we called either live live or live to tape. There's no, there's no going back and doing fixes and recalling races or anything like that. But with that being said, we had two commentary teams because of the enormous volume of hours and the time zone difference that we had to juggle. So there was a totally separate commentary team uh, in Stamford, Connecticut. One of the members of our commentary team, uh, Tim Hutchings, was actually in London uh, at the Sky Sports facility because Sky Sports is owned by Comcast, part of the part of the big family. So they were doing pretty much everything that moved. We were doing from Tokyo. We were doing prime time specific stuff. So we knew working with our producers, it was almost like a menu of races. We're going to do this one, that one, that one, that one. We're going to miss those two. And then we're going to come back for the next one because that has a US athlete in it. So it was very, it was very specific. It was very detailed. But yeah, no, when, when you call the race, you call the race. So is it safe to assume here that you'll be spending this upcoming February in Beijing? That's a, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I hope so. I hope so because, um, you know, I enjoy getting, getting uh, a little bit of extra information from the athletes. Uh, you know, the way the sliding sports work, particularly bobsled when they've got to wait for the sleds to come back up, up the hill. The athletes are quite often hanging around, not yet up in the start house. So you can, you know, if, if you have, if the time permits and the time's right, you can actually bump into the athletes and get a little, little extra story uh, material. I don't know. That being said, you know, because of COVID and it's not just NBC, it's every broadcaster around the world. You know, everybody's learned that, that you can do broadcasting in different and more economically friendly ways. Um, look at the three of us. You know, yeah. I'm, at the moment, I'm at my mate's house in Hilton Head, South Carolina, you know, and I don't even know where I'm speaking to you guys at, but, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're putting, we're putting okay, we're putting this together. And, and so, you know, for sure, broadcasters have learned a, um, a new and more economically friendly model. So that's a long, it's a long way about saying, Nick, I don't know how to answer your question just yet. I will soon, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I have a quick question. Which do you prefer, Aussie rules football or rugby, and why? Aussie rules football because I played it. I played it when I was when I was a teenager, and uh, my there you go. my my um, my mum and dad uh, used to live in the state of Victoria. And back when I was a kid, uh, it wasn't called AFL. It wasn't called the Australian Football League. It was called the VFL, the Victorian Football League. So that's where it generated. But now it's gone. That you know, for many years it has been a national sport. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Give me, uh, give me AFL any day. 
Yeah, I had a friend who studied abroad when he, we were in college and he went to Australia and he was like, Aussie rules football, like those stadiums and that atmosphere and those games and the rules, he was just like eating it up alive. So very, very different. Uh, I feel like that style, the way they play over there would, would catch on here, but obviously we have, you know, our own football league and it's quite dominant. So uh, I just wanted to ask you that quick. So uh, back to prep stuff. Uh, I wanted to ask you what a typical prep day uh, for a major event or, or race would look like, you know, how do you start? How do you wake up? Um, you know, how much do you, how much time do you dedicate to, to, to interviewing other racers and drivers? And um, so, and also uh, notes or, or stuff that you have to, to, to help you on a typical broadcast. So say for instance, take, um, take for example, if, if this weekend I was getting ready for an IndyCar race. So we've just finished the IndyCar season actually, but, if I was getting ready for an IndyCar race, um, I would, would have returned home the weekend before, probably on the Sunday night. So I've got Monday through Thursday. Thursday is typically a travel day. Um, Wednesdays are always is a two-call day. Uh, we start with a what's called a competition call where we speak to the president of IndyCar and the race, the race director of IndyCar. Anything from the previous race and anything from this race that might be pertinent that we need to know, any penalties or justifications of why did you give that penalty? Why did that driver, why was that driver, you know, uh, any changes to the track, any, anything like that, any updates or any um, revisits to stuff that's happened, that's immediately followed by a, a total crew uh, um, production meeting with our producers, with our coordinating producer, um, everybody where we, where we discuss storylines for this weekend, things that have changed, things that were good from the week before, things that weren't. What can we do better? What are the key storylines for this weekend? And how, what, who are we going to feature? What, are we got, what have we got you know, uh, in the hopper that, that's going to look good and make the broadcast better for the viewers? So what, what's on tap for this weekend? So that, that takes up a, a good couple of hours on a, on a Wednesday. In and around that, it's up to you when you would, how you structure your own research. And, and you know, I can't speak for the other guys and girls. Um, every, everybody does something different. One thing that I like to do is I uh, get, we all get given a link from, from uh, NBC, from our producers of, say, for instance, this weekend we're racing at Long Beach. We get sent the, the broadcast on a link from the last Long Beach. And I go through for the whole team. I watch it. I watch every second of that broadcast. And I go through and I make lap-by-lap lap notes this happened to Nick on lap five. This happened to Joe on lap 55. There's, this is when they pitted. This is when they stopped. And I do a log of the whole race. I do atmospheric conditions. I do time of year. I do every, everything so we can have a, an AB black and white comparison. And I send that off to, to our whole team. In and around that, we have, a, we have statistical support. Uh, we have a dedicated statistician uh, just for us, who provides us with a, with, a, with a book of stats and a book of history, historical significant things. And then it's, it's up to uh, you work with the team's PR people. You work on your own relationships with the drivers, your own relationships with uh, the team owners or engineers or whatever, and you have to get on the phone. You get on the phone and you ring around and you get some of the background and you know you, it's, it's impossible every week to get to every single driver. But then when we get on site, you can go around to their garages. Uh, IndyCar PR hosts bullpen media sessions where they might get as many as half the driver field. And so you get, you know, by the time we're ready to go to the race, you pretty much have something on every single driver in the field that you can deliver. So 
it's a little bit of it, it's uh, it's pre weekend, and it's in the weekend. Uh, how that information flows, and so you just got to, you know, what are the biggest stories? What might be something that nobody knows just yet? You kind of got to put it all in the all in the blender and and you know try and work out when it when when is the right time to bring it out. And sometimes you gather a lot of information and it never makes it there because the racing's so good, or you 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 might not see that driver. That driver might drop out early or whatever. So. You actually do do quite a volume of work that sometimes, unfortunately, never. It's kind of like the old movie scenario. It's on the cutting room floor, but you you get over that pretty quickly and move on. I have to ask you an important question that I ask all play-by-play people, and for you, I'm really curious because you're doing racing, so these are these these races are long, and you know how do you balance uh, you know keeping your your throat you know, good. You don't want to lose your voice, but you don't want to drink too much beverages. I'm thinking because you don't want to go to the bathroom. You have no time really. Uh, are you drinking tea? You're drinking water. Maybe you're drinking soda for energy. What are you doing there? And also, again, it's a long day. So energy wise, curious what your, your pre race meal is and are you eating after? Just want to hear your thoughts on that. So Nick, here is the, here is the truth. Here is the scoop. Your beverage intake is based on how far the restroom is away from the commentary booth. <laughs> and if it's too far away, if it's too far away to have a bathroom break in a in a in a commercial space, then you really ease back on the on the beverage intake. So uh, if you've got a restroom that's close by, then have at it. Drink as much water or whatever. I just drink water. I either drink uh, still water or sparkling water. Uh, one of my commentary colleagues, Paul Tracy, he loves, he drinks, he pounds the Diet Coke. Um, but uh, <laughs> every, every, everybody, everybody's different. Everybody's different, like what you do. And there's no set pre, there's no set pre-broadcast meal. It varies. We, we eat in the TV compound. Sometimes we eat at hospitality units. It's, yeah, there's no, there's no um, set rhythm to it. Um, but def- definitely, here's the interesting thing. What we do is not physically taxing. Uh, as far as once you're in the broadcast, um, but you do need to eat. You do need sustenance because it's it's that that mental energy is. If you're hungry, it just it just mm-hmm. take you know it takes you it takes your mind off it or whatever. So it's never good. You don't want to go into a you don't want to go into a broadcast either with a Thanksgiving size meal in your in your stomach either because you're going to be all bogged down and and uh, so yeah something to eat before you go in and lots of fluids because yeah to your point it does does help your throat and. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful time. Just hearing you talk about it is makes me relive it. You know, I know I do it every weekend, but it's a wonderful time when you get to that point because you got all this lead up, all this lead up, all this lead up, and then when when we actually go on air, that's when we enter our world, and it's a beautiful world to live in. As far as it's exciting, it's live, it's real, it's sport that's playing out in front of you. Um, I remember once. I remember once I was on the Today Show uh, doing this doing this promotion. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, the movie star, had done one of those animated movies where he was the voiceover, and it was the movie Turbo. It was about snails going. The snail wanted to go to the Indianapolis 500, and they had some drivers there as guests: Tony Kanaan, Elio Castro Neves, Ryan Hunter Ray, and I was commentating. And they had all of the Today Show uh, regulars on there with Ryan Reynolds, and they were playing skeetball. And um, I had a little snafu in the morning in, in, in Manhattan and I was late to the rehearsal, which was at 5 a.m. or something. I was late to the rehearsal and 
there was there was uh, one of my producers was there as as a facilitator, and he was working with the the movie's distribution arm. And uh, this lady from from the distribution arm just she flipped out and she said, "This is this is this is we we we're, we're we're done. We have to go to a plan B." And my producer said, "Why?" And she said, "He's missed the rehearsal." How he, he can't do this. And he said, why, what are you talking about? And this, this woman said, how on earth is he going to call a race he's never seen? And my producer said, he does it every weekend. It's his little profession. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, got a couple of fan questions for you. Okay. I have a, uh, a co-worker who's a huge motorsports fan, so he's got a couple of questions for you. I'm going to mention him. His name is Rob Riches. He's a really, really great friend of mine. Uh, first question, favorite tracks to announce at? Uh, Le Mans in France, uh, the 24-hour sports car race. It's such a, uh, it's more than just a race. It's an event. I got, I got to call that 10 years in a row. It was incredible. Uh, pretty exhilarating to do the Monaco Formula One Grand Prix. I got to do that five years in a row. That's spectacular. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Um, the Bathurst 1000 in Australia on Mount Panorama. That's, uh, you know, that's Australia's biggest race. Um, and then, and it's not, not in any particular order, uh, there is nothing, there is nothing like being at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Indy 500, where there's over 300,000 people in attendance and the cars are coming to the green flag and, and, and I've got to think of something, you know, appropriate and, and motivating and exciting uh, to say as they're coming to green. And, you can hear the roar of the fans and it gives you goosebumps just thinking about it now. There's nothing like being at the Speedway. The pageantry, the milk, the bricks, everything. That must yep. be great. Yep. I like that answer. You give a little bit of, you know, different worldly flair there. A couple of different countries. That's great. Uh, second question. What's the difference in preparing to call a road course versus calling an over race? The cadence is very different. And particularly on a short oval, the cadence is incredibly fast and you really have to pay close attention, particularly on pit stop cycles, on pit stop rotations when cars are going down a lap on a green flag stop and you really have to pay attention to who is where and when, which particular driver stopped, etc. Road course is more predictable. The cadence is a lot slower depending on the length of the track. Um, it's just, it's, it's kind of more laid out for you doesn't mean that people can't go off strategy and do something different but i would say the, the simple answer to that is the cadence of the two races are very the two tracks types of tracks and the races that they produce are very very different got one more point from him not a question uh he said you're an absolute ace on the mic and one of his favorite play-by-play voices so he's I told you he's a legitimate fan legitimate hugely fan of you and uh one of the best in the business you're the guy in the business um so again, Nick and I, um, not huge motorsports fans, but uh, I hope the questions that we've had so far have been sufficient. Uh, hope you've enjoyed your time with us, but we're going to get ready to let you go. Uh, I have one more question, kind of a personal question. Uh, can you kind of answer this however you want to, but I need to ask it. Um, what in particular do you miss the most about being home in Australia? Uh, well, first, firstly, it's family, right? Because right. Um, I, I, you know, I'm on this podcast with you because of what I've done in my career, and and I'm I'm vehemently proud of that. But the sacrifice is that you you miss out on a lot of family time, you know. And 
Uh, right now, because of COVID, I haven't seen my mum in over two and a half years, uh, which is tough. I haven't seen my sister in over two and a half years um, and, and every other, you know, family member, cousins and uncles and aunts and things like that. And, and, and a lot of close friends, you know, some of my best mates are still in Australia. So that's what I miss first and foremost. Um, you know, I miss the, the, the awesome summer mornings walking down to the beach and, 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 and going for a swim and then, you know, Aussie, long, long Aussie lunches uh, at nice restaurants are pretty legendary too. <laughs> so obviously you do the Olympics, you do uh, motorsports, and there are some motorsports uh, in, in the Olympics uh, as far as things with uh, motorcycles and whatnot. But do you think we'll ever see a day where there is, you know, a NASCAR event or an IndyCar event in the Olympics? Because to me, it seems like, you know, why shouldn't there be? There's, there's golf tournaments, you know, there's tennis. So could you imagine all the drama, you know, you get in there, just one race going for gold, silver, and bronze, and how exciting that would be for you to call something like that? I think it'd be fantastic. I mean, listen, it's, it's one of the most argued points, uh, and you guys, you guys can pick up the baton and carry it for me. It's one of the most argued points I've had in, in my life and my career is that when you go to a you might be out in a bar or you go to a dinner party or you're at a backyard grill out or something and you meet that person who says drivers, riders, they're not athletes. All they do is sit in a car and turn the steering wheel. And, you know, it couldn't be, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, um, motorcycle riders and, and, and drivers are, are elite athletes. Incredible. You know, you think about what happens at the Indianapolis 500. They're doing 240 miles an hour, you know, into turn one. They have to race for 500 miles. Their heart rate's at 170 beats per minute sustained. You have 32 other cars around you all trying to pass you and race you. And in a split second, you could lose your life. You know, these guys have to be, they're, they're, they're super freaks. I was at MotoGP last weekend in Austin, Texas. You know, those, the, the, those motorcycles, the MotoGP bikes in the top class, they're faster than a Formula One car. You know, and they're on lean angles of 60 degrees and, and uh, it just, it's, it's, it's insane. And you cannot not be an, an athlete to do that. So I would say, Nick, it's uh, never say never. I would be surprised if it ever did. But hey, you've got BMX, you've got skateboarding, you've right. got golf there now. I mean, it's the, the spectrum of sports, just uh, particularly in the summer games, continues to widen. So, hey, never say never and we uh, cross our fingers. What? But then I'd have a difficult choice to make. I'd have to, I'd have to negotiate with my bosses right. and I'd have to give up track and field. Yeah. And I'm not sure I want to do that. At the <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll work out. If you get, if you get uh, the, the race in the first week of the Olympics before track, track and field kicks before up. track kicks yeah. in. That's right. right. That's right. It'll work it out. <laughs> what for you in, in your career or your life is kind of your, you know, I'm right home. So what we mean by that is someone told you, you know, Hey Lee, this is what you got to do. You got to do it this way. This is how it's going to work out. And you kind of said, I don't think so. I'm, I'm going to do it this way. This is the way I think it's going to work out. And when it all plays out, you'll see that, you know, I'm right. Well, I don't think there's any one person or one particular incident that shaped that. Um, I have always tried to be a good listener. I've always tried to take criticism from superiors not to heart, try and take it constructively, which is very difficult at times. 
particularly when you think you're right and, and they're telling you you're not. Um, I think you try to be as flexible as you can and as open as you can. Um, I, worked, I, worked for, I worked for more than three years with the Olympic producers to ensure I was ready for Tokyo to do track and field. Tom Hammond, Tom, Tom Hammond is a legend of our industry and Tom had done track and field for the Olympics since 1992. And I was stepping into those shoes. That was a big responsibility. That was a big leap of faith from the network. So I had lots of sessions with the producers where, and you know, this is my 25th year in network television. It's tough to sit down and they go, don't like that. Don't like that. Do that. Don't do that. You've got to take it on board because they are trying to make me better. They're trying to get me ready for the biggest opportunity and the biggest broadcast of my life, which it was. And I'm so thankful that I, that, that, that they took the time and effort and energy to make sure that I was, that I was ready. And I was, that I was commentating in a way that they wanted, they wanted the sport on NBC Olympics to be heard. So you've got to care. You've got to listen. You've got to be flexible. And I, I don't think I don't have a particular example, Nick, to say, you know, I was right, but I tell you what, I tell you what has helped me enormously in my career. When I was a teenager, before I even started broadcasting, I saw an episode of Australia 60 Minutes and they had a special on three people who were under the age of 30 who'd all become millionaires by that stage. And back in those days, that was a lot of money. And uh, one guy called Simon Reynolds was an ad advertising executive and he had created this very controversial advertisement based around the AIDS um, uh, epidemic. And uh, he had a saying and it was about about risk taking in his in his profession and, and how he had become so successful and there are two people standing on the edge of a cliff and the first person says to the other one come come over come over and have a look at the view no no i can't i can't i'm scared of heights come over come over to the edge and and, and have a look no i can't i can't i might fall he says come to the edge of the cliff you just might fly and that's stuck with me for my whole life and that's the way that i've lived my professional and personal life if you don't ask the question, if you ask the question and the answer is no, you're not any worse off than where you are now. So ask the question, have a go, just have a go. And I've always had a go. And sometimes my uh, risk-taking and, and opportunity chasing hasn't worked out, but I can tell you that more often than not, it has. Well, you went to the edge of the cliff and you drove and you drove <laughs> to a, and you flew a little bit from you know, place to place, but um Lee, we thank you for taking uh, your time, your effort, and your energy to do this podcast with us. We really appreciate it. What Nick and I do is we always give our guests here the last words. So if there's anything else you would like to share or promote, this was so much fun. I think you're a tremendously well-spoken person, uh, very articulate with all your answers, really great answers, really great insight. Uh, but like I said, we give our guests the last words. So whatever is on your mind, whatever else you want to share, go right ahead. Really appreciate you coming on one more time. Thank you again. Well, thank you both for having me on. Uh, lovely way to spend a, um, an afternoon here in, in uh, Hilton Head in South Carolina. And, and enjoy uh, the weather down there. It's pretty good. I, I have. It's pretty, it's pretty warm. I live in Connecticut, as you know, and it's, uh, it's a lot different to what we have in the Northeast. I, although the, North, the Northeast is cooling off nicely. Listen, I think what this has been all about, the time that we've spent together, is about storytelling. So the final word is, uh, keep going. Stories, good stories make the world go around and everybody likes to hear a good story. So keep the stories coming. All right. Well, you know, so right. we appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for your time. And that's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right. So for our very special guest, Lee Diffie, and for my co-host, 
Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. Thank you.